if I'm going to quote somebody, I want to be sure that I quote them right. Okay, I want to be sure that I say it the way I should. Um, and so I texted Tim this morning to say, brother, I'm going to quote you this morning in the sermon. And I want to be sure that I that I do it correctly. Okay, so just and if you want to know the story behind that picture right there, come see me after service. Okay, and I'll tell you all about it. All right. There's a reason Tim's got two kazoos sticking out of his mouth. Um, but we were um, a few a few weeks ago at the uh, Life Choices Banquet. Tim shared that night. And one of the things he said as he was sharing toward the end was something that really caught my ear and has kind of been floating around in my brain all week as I've been working through this passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Tim said that he wakes up every morning and the prayer that he begins the day with is, Daddy, I'm your boy. What are we doing today? Daddy, I'm your boy. What are we doing today? Because that drive, that purpose or goal that you have for that day, and really for every day in your life, is what I want to talk about for just a minute, even as we get into Ephesians um, chapter 5. Cicero um, was the first one probably to use the term, a Latin term, sumum bonum, which means our highest good, our highest purpose. The little medallion that you see up there on the screen um, was, was kind of coined that phrase. Marcus Aurelius, one of the emperors there in the Roman Empire, um, used it kind of as his life verse, as his goal for the life, and those are the words that are on that. But I want you to think for just a minute about your summum bonum, your highest good, your ultimate purpose, what that would be. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, has a section in there where he talks about the cultural consequences of sin. And we're going to talk about that. By the way, we're not going to get all the way through the text today, all right? We're going to do part of it today and part of it next week. But he talks about the cultural consequences of sin. And he says this, that when societies and individuals cling too closely to any belief or any entity other than God, that ultimately that broken belief will become the essence of our identity. We will literally, because we're made to be in a covenant relationship, right? We've talked about God's covenant love this morning. We've sung about it. We are made to be in that covenant relationship. And, and God or that which is God to us is that to which we will cling and that clinging, that identity, is what ultimately is going to define for us our sunum bonum, our ultimate good. All right? That's why it's so important that, that if God is not at the center of our lives, then it'll end up being empty, and not just empty, but devastating, even destructive, as we see in the rest of Ephesians chapter 5. So the question I have this morning for you is, who, who are you? Who are you in the very core of your being? Because who we are determines what we believe and how we think. 
And how we think and what we believe determines how we behave. And what Paul has been laying out before us is this understanding that boils down to that. Understand who you are, church, he says. And when you grasp that that understanding, when that literally becomes your understanding of who you are, that will determine how we live, how we will behave. And so Ephesians 1 through 3 with this great theological foundational truth of who we are as God has called us to himself, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul says in love, he predestined us for adoption as his children. That's who we are in Christ. Holy and blameless in the sight of God and his children, part of a family, part of this covenant community. And so that defines our highest good. The other thing that Keller does that and and some take some exception to this is he defines sin in that context. Now, we understand that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what that's what the Bible teaches us. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've all wandered, if you will, and rebelliously run in ways opposite of what God would have us run. We are lawbreakers. And that, in, in one essence, is, is what sin is. But there's, there's more to it than that, okay? It's, it's more multifaceted than that. And what Keller tells us is that sin is ultimately building our identity or defining our sunum bonum, our ultimate good, on anything or anyone other than God. I think that's part of what it means to fall short of the glory of God. When we all fall, fall, when we all sin and fall short of God's glory, we are falling short of that ultimate good that, that he has for us. So what you worship, what you hold on to, how you identify yourself, that is your God. And so with, with that understanding in mind, the text today is really, really practical. Just look at those pictures for just a second and, and think about think about life. Think about parenting. Think about the roles of adults. Um, I appreciated the picture that, uh, I guess, Sonia, I was going to put it up here. Sonia Hoxie posted a picture of Papa, Grandpa Craig Hoxie standing on the fence and, and one of his grandchildren there on the fence beside him. This idea that we are imitators. We are, right? Would, would we be humble enough to acknowledge that we are imitators of, of someone or of something? And this idea that is before us here is that because we are God's children, if you're in Christ today, then that's your identity all right? You're a citizen of his kingdom. You're a child of God. And as such, we are called to imitate him. We're called to be radically different. In fact, even rebellious against the culture in the way we live, as we'll see in the rest of this passage. 
And so this radically different way of living, putting off the old and putting on the new that we've seen in the text, that's the focus of this. And what what's saying is, is because we are God's family, because we are his people, because we are a part of his kingdom, there are certain kinds of behaviors, certain ways of looking at the world and understanding what truth is. There are certain kinds of behaviors that are worthy or appropriate And there are certain kinds of behaviors that are inappropriate. I I think I said something like that last week. This is almost like a, okay, this is a preschool lesson in some ways, right? There's some things that we do and some things that we don't do if you're a part of this family. And this walk is so radically different from the culture. And nowhere do we see those differences more starkly than we do in this passage that we see here. And so... We're called first to recognize who we are and then respond with right belief, right thinking, which leads to right living. So, imitate God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A little theology lesson here, okay, a little systematic theology. We've had our Latin lesson already, so a little systematic theology. Our statement of faith here at Westwood, as a Southern Baptist Church, is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Look on the screen and, and, and follow along. This is what we believe about the nature and the character of God. There is one and only one living and true God. He has an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being. The creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. The Westminster Confession goes a little further in what it says about who we are. And I won't read the whole thing, but the Westminster Confession says there is but one living, excuse me, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. Working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. For his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. I'll, I'll stop reading that part. So here's, here's the point that I want to make. There are incommunicable traits that God possesses. Meaning, he has them, but we don't and won't. Alright? Certain characteristics of God are his alone. As these statements of faith very beautifully describe for us. Alright? He is, he is, he is, as we see, he is infinite. We're not. He is perfect. We're not. He is invisible. We're not. 
God's incommunicable attributes include his 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 power. He's omniscient, his knowledge. He's he's omnipresent. He's he's infinite in his being and in his perfection. He alone is all sufficient. All right. He doesn't need us for his glory. He shares his glory with us. There are, though, those communicable traits, those traits that he graciously shares and, in fact, places in us as part of being made in his image. And these statements talk about that. His moral attributes are those communicable traits, okay? The fact that he is love and good and kind. God is all wise, And he graciously shares that wisdom with us, right? James says that if we lack it, we can ask for it, and he gives it in abundance. He is all wise. God is 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 holy, and he calls us to partake in, receive, share in that holiness. All right? He is the triune God. He is unified. And Jesus uses that unity as an example of the unity that we're to have within the body of Christ. Bound together. Different colors, different languages, nationalities, all those differences, yet bound together by the gospel. Unified. Jesus prayed, make them one as we are one. He also shares with us his his forgiveness. This this forgiveness character trait of God is one that he shares with us. Chapter 4, we just ended up with that last week. We're to be forgiving as God in Christ forgave us and his love. His love defines what true love is. And his love is is that which fuels us. Jason, I think you even prayed this, that it's that fountain out of which our love flows. So we are called to imitate God today. We're called to imitate him in his love first. All right. And we will see within the rest of this passage down through verse seven and even following that we are called to live as children of light. God has taken us translated, transferred, whichever term you want to use out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, out of darkness into light and light life. Life in the light looks different than life in the dark, right? And and this idea of love that Paul puts before us here, that we're to imitate God, that we're to be like him. Literally, the word is mimic in the Greek. We're to mimic him like the little boy pushing the plastic lawnmower, like the little girl doing the, the aerobics with her mom. Whatever those mimicking images are that you have. We're to mimic the love of God. And that's part of his communicable characteristic that he gives to us. We're to love like him. And how did he love? Well, it's that term covenant love that that Jason used again in his prayer, that hesed love, that commitment, that redemption that we've already seen, that he has redeemed us by Jesus' blood, and that idea of the Redeemer That he is taking upon himself full responsibility to take care of us, provide for us, meet our needs and give us security. We can't do that ourselves. And part of his love for us is that redemptive love. Part of his love for us is this picture that John uses when he says, see the kind of love that God has for us. What kind of love the father has given to us that we share in his name, that we should be called children of God. And that is who we are, he says in 1 John 3, 1. 
So our identity, our identity is very much grounded in that. What is it Paul says in Galatians 2.20? Well, he gives this testimony. I've been crucified with Christ so that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Loved me. Loved me. And gave himself for me. Which leads us into that second characteristic of this first verse. We are to mimic God in his love and we are to follow the example of Christ in verse 2. That's, that's the, the idea. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Which is what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. This is a love that gives of itself for the sake of others. And I'll go ahead and just lay the groundwork for what comes in verses 3 and follows. Because there's a comparison. No, it's not a comparison. It's a contrast. The love that is defined by Christ and exemplified in Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us. That same word is used earlier, we saw in Ephesians 4.19, that giving up of myself. But note the context. 4.19 is describing me and you before we were in Christ. All right? They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In contrast to the lust and the worldly understanding of love that's defined in the old self. That's defined in not what I give of myself for others, but what others give or I take that's going to fill that hole in my heart. First John chapter 3, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. So what, you might ask? Glad you did. John says next, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So this idea that we love like God and we follow the example of Christ in his sacrificing love, in his giving of himself. And then thirdly, that same idea is this idea of worship, who offered himself up as that pleasing aroma. All right. There's this idea, these senses that are a part of our worship, that are a part of helping us understand what it means to love God with all of our heart. Is this idea of the sacrifice being put up on the altar that burnt offering, and, and this aroma being lifted up. In Revelation, we saw that the prayers of the saints are lifted up like incense before God. It's a pleasing aroma to Him. All right, so if us southern boys need something to help us grab hold of this idea, it's the barbecue in the backyard, all right? You just, I mean, I can be riding down the road, and it's like, whoa, turn around and just start following this smell. It's a pleasing aroma, right? Now, Kurt says they're going to have a barbecue. What they call a barbecue out there is different, okay, from what we call a barbecue here, all right? Kurt knows that, all right? But he's just getting in with the culture there, okay? I'm I'm way off track. (laughs) Aroma. Aroma. Pleasing to God 
and influencing to the world. This is that worship aspect of the example of Christ I want to touch on for just a second. Pleasing to God and influencing within the world. I'm taking this concept and looking at it from a couple of different passages. The Old Testament, again and again, talks about animal sacrifices that are offered up to God and are received by God as acceptable, pleasing, in fact, to him. It tells us that when Noah came out of the ark and offered up that sacrifice to God as thanksgiving and worship for his deliverance, that it was offered up to God and the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. That's what we, all, that's what we seek to do here, even on Sunday morning as we gather. To offer up a sacrifice to God that is a pleasing aroma to him. That's what you do in your personal worship. Paul says that's what we do with our very lives in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And that living sacrifice is offered up to God as a pleasing aroma. That follows the example of Christ. But even more than that, this idea that our whole life is offered up to him, it's also a witness then to the world. So this idea of our worship, our following the example of Christ has a vertical dimension to it. It's pleasing to God and it has a horizontal dimension to it. That our radically different lifestyle that comes because we are in Christ, adopted children, in a covenant relationship with God. This horizontal lifestyle is then an aroma, okay, to the community and the culture around us. How is that received? Well, it depends. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 2. In verse 15, we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. And to those who are perishing, to the one we are the smell of death, but to the other the fragrance of life. Wow. I can think of no better illustration, no better way to comprehend what this walk with Christ looks like in our culture and in our world today. To some, to a few, it is the picture of what real life is. To others, it is an offense. It is an offense. And in fact, rather than being seen as loving, it's seen as being hateful. And that's what we see as we look at these verses that follow us after verse chapter 2, after chapter 2 here, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. But I want us to think about this just a little bit longer. I read an article this week. I don't even know why I thought to go here. But I was thinking about this idea that Jason mentioned a minute ago, this fountain of love flowing out of us. And, Kurt, honestly, I was thinking about this in your context and praying for you and your church out there. Because this idea of love is, is morally beautiful to everybody. Everybody. Regardless of your, regardless of your religion, regardless of your faith system, regardless of your understanding of who God is, this idea of love, even even as I was reading this week in a, in an in an atheist manifesto, this idea of love is one that is so tightly held to. And here's what this article was written by a guy named Frank Zindler, who is the former president of the American Atheist Association. He wrote an essay, and, and the title of it, the essay is Ethics Without Gods. So you can kind of tell where this is going. Ethics Without Gods. Atheist, he says, can love and live with the good of others in mind. He says, because our nervous systems are imprintable, 
We are able not only to fall in love at first sight, we're able to love objects and ideals as well as people. We're able to love with variable intensities. A major aim of enlightened self-interest, it's a key term there, enlightened self-interest, surely is to give and receive love, both sexual and non-sexual. And he says in his, in his little essay, as a general, though not absolute rule, we must choose those behaviors which will likely bring us love and acceptance, and we must eschew those behaviors which will not bring us love and acceptance. Do you, do you hear something in there that ought to raise your antenna a little bit? Be discerning for a second and just listen to this phrase. Atheists can love and live with the good of others in mind, and we must choose behaviors, he says, which will likely bring us love and acceptance. So that understanding of love and of an ethical life is motivated by me. What will I get in return? I want to do what is best not necessarily for the sake of you, but if I do you well, you will do me well. So this idea is it's focused on the horizontal and all the benefits of reciprocity are what motivates that kind of love. What I'm going to get from it, what I expect from you as I give you this love, and as I give you this, and this idea of reciprocity, this quid quo pro, is that always going to work? Is there going to come a time when the well is just empty? What happens if I continue to try to be nice to you and you don't do anything but spit in my face and call me a bigot and call me hateful? What's going to happen to you if I try to love you and speak the truth of Christ, the good news of the gospel into your life? And you tell me that I'm at best unenlightened and at worst a hate monger. Does that change what I do? Does that change or motivate me in a different way? Not if I am rooted and grounded in Christ and his love is indeed the fountain from which that is flowing out. If I'm living for the sake of morality, my focus is rules. My focus is your morals or the morals of those around me. Yes, sin is breaking rules. But Keller nails it when he says, if that's all that sin is, then heaven's filled with Pharisees. That's not his words, but mine. Because there were no better rule keepers than the Pharisees. And yet Jesus said they're like a tomb with rotten dead bones on the inside. So this moral focus has to be much more than just the morality. It's focused on the very character of God and the truths of the gospel. We love because we have been loved. Not so we will be loved. Do you see that church? You see that that picture that we have here and and it fits in such a beautiful context with the whole passage that we've been looking at, even as the chapter four finished. And I thought about this. I thought about not even sharing this story, but I really think it's important to us to 
to, to think about this, this example of this love and forgiveness that is so Christ-like. It comes from the life of Corey Tim Boom. You may have heard this. Corey Tim Boom was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camp at Ravensbrück. I'm just going to read you a little bit out of her autobiography. It said, it was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched in between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I'd just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I, I like to think that that's where forgiveness of sins, where forgiven sins are thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn German faces, she says, stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps, and in silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him, she writes, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with a skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the middle of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. You see, Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. And now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. (laughs) And I, she says, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness fumbled in my pocketbook rather than to take that hand. He would not remember me. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him. I remembered the leather crop swinging from his belt. And it was the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. So no, he did not remember me. But since that time he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. And again, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? She says, I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. And could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for asking for forgiveness? She said, it could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, and I knew that. The message that God has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have been injured by us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. 
Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for the victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former, former enemies were able, to live, were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what their physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. Corrie Boone says, as I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, recognizing forgiveness is not an emotion, and I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You must supply the feeling. So woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. And for a moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did right then. And having thus learned to forgive in this hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. Oh, I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that mercy and charitability, those thoughts just naturally flowed in from me from then on, but they didn't. If there is one thing I learned in my 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior. I can only draw them fresh from God each day. So I know that's long. But this love and forgiveness flows from the fountain of Christ. And church, we've got no, we have no choice in the matter if we're walking with Christ. But to love and forgive that way. And that context, that reality that's in those first two verses is, is this picture of that self-sacrificing love of Christ. And it is the polar opposite of the lust of the world. And so that's this stark contrast that comes between verses 1 and 2 and the rest of the passage. And that's the reason why I'm not even going to try to cover the rest of it today. Because that foundational reality is that our behaviors are shaped and motivated by our beliefs. And our beliefs and our thinking are shaped by who we are. And church, today, if, if you are in Christ, seated right there in that green pew, then love and forgiveness is who He is and who He has saved you to be. And that's the calling that we have. And what follows here, this, this inward view, this self-serving view of who I am and my sexuality and my pursuits, this view that, that my identity is in someone or something other than Christ is the view and the understanding of the culture around us. And I fear that too often our views on that as Christians are moralistic more than they are gospel-centered. Meaning we're ready to gather around that woman caught in adultery that Jesus was with. And we're ready to pick up the stones. 
And we need the Holy Spirit to take the word of God and speak it into our hearts and say, you who are without sin, be the first one. And so this foundational truth of the love and forgiveness of God is so important for us as we step into these next verses, which take us right into the middle of our culture. Right into the middle of what's going on around us. Because our culture has bought into the lie that my identity is not who I am made in the image of God. My identity is who, is I, am, who I am as a sexual being. Who I am is, is based on my feelings. Who I am is based on what you say I ought to be. And what I think I need to do to be accepted by this larger group, this larger culture around me. That's the enemy's lie. That's not the gospel truth. And before we go trudging into this culture with the good news, we have to have that foundation of this agape covenant love so that we can speak the truth in love. We can speak into it with relevancy. We can speak into it with boldness. We can speak into it with a radical, indeed rebellious idea of, of what this culture wants to receive. Uh, listen, walking with Christ is not just countercultural. It is rebellion against the culture around us. And that's what he's called us to. But he's called us to do it, not as moralistic Pharisees, but as sinners who have been forgiven, who are making, a, making it a constant, continual practice of repentance, And then humbly, with Christ-like love, standing before a culture and offering them so much more. Offering them so much better. Offering them an understanding of who they are. That a lost and dying world around us just can't touch. So, that's where we'll go next week. And that's where we are today. So the invitation today, first off, is just simply, have you received this love and forgiveness? Has the enemy whispered into your eyes, I mean, whispered into your heart, or the culture whispered into your heart, you've gone too far. You're hopeless. That's just some crazy preacher up there speaking. No. The God who made you in His image speaks through his word to say to you, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I've loved you even when you were still sinning enough to send my son to redeem you out of that lifestyle, offer you forgiveness and wholeness, and let you really see what your sunum bonum is. Your highest pursuit is living for and loving the God who created you. And through Christ, that invitation is extended to you. And church, our application of this may be to get the giant log out of our stinking eyes so that we can begin to love and serve the community around us. To recognize that we've not loved the way Christ has called us to love. And maybe, maybe it goes deeper than that. Maybe there is within you some semblance of what Corey Tim Boom experienced that day. And you just don't see it within you to be able to forgive. Guess what? It ain't there. You can't. <laughs> And that first simple step of obedience, going to that individual, addressing that situation, 
Simply lifting up your cold wooden hand and asking God to empower it through his warm, loving Holy Spirit love. Maybe that's the step you need to take this week. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word today that it is a light to our feet. It's a lamp to our path. It is the mirror through which we look into and by the light of your spirit see, see ourselves. It is the, the means by which it is the, the picture of love that we need to be reminded of this morning, God. It is the picture of forgiveness that we need to have burned into our hearts. Lord, I pray for your church this morning that we would just, oh God, I pray you'd restore to us the joy of your salvation. Remind us, Lord, of how gracious and good you have been to us in forgiving us of our sin, in calling us to yourself as your children, in giving us the gift of salvation when we deserved the punishment of hell. Thank you for that. And Father, I pray today for your Holy Spirit to work in each heart that's in this place. To the end that you'll be glorified. Perhaps a soul here today would be restored and saved in the grace of Christ. And this message, God, would be that which we take out of this building into the culture and community around us. And we humbly pray that, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.